and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. Today we're following up on our episode about dogs with one about cats, because let's be honest, we wouldn't hear the end of it from cat people if we didn't. It's true. So here's something to start with. Cats and dogs both have a huge amount of variation within their species, dogs more so. So a carryover from last week, think about a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. Those are the same species. Cats are diverse, but not nearly as diverse in size and shape as dogs. A lion and a house cat are not the same species. In fact, they're not even the same genus. Big cats are actually in the genus Panthera. The huge variation in dog morphology has everything to do with selective human breeding and the various traits we've desired in dogs over millennia. And the smaller range of variation in cats speaks to a different sort of relationship between humans and cats. It's still domestication, but cats were slower to decide that they wanted to commit to the relationship. That said, Felis catus has had a very long history with humans. Ancient Egyptians may have first domesticated cats as early as 4,000 years ago, which, you know, doesn't hold a candle to the 20,000 years ago for dogs. All right, dog but, person. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Uh, but, you know. Plentiful rodents probably drew wild felines to human communities. The cat's skill in killing them may have first earned the affectionate attention of humans and their little whiskers and tails. Oh, and their little uh, paws. Oh, gosh, their paws. It's true. Their paws are pretty great. Early Egyptians worshipped a cat goddess and even mummified their beloved pets for the journey to the next world, allegedly accompanied by mummified mice. But I couldn't find any. I couldn't find any. No, I wish it. Well, I mean, I don't wish I, I don't. That's not something I want to find, but it's something yeah. I want to hear about someone else finding. Yeah. And so they we think that they're the, the earliest pro cat culture. But folks around the world later adopted cats as their own companions. Eventually. So fitting in with the sort of general caricature of cat temperament. Caricature. Caricature. Well, good night, everybody. So so fitting in with the general view of sort of cat temperament, we can sort of say that cats domesticated themselves. So in a new comprehensive study of the spread of domesticated cats, DNA analysis suggests that cats lived for thousands of years alongside humans before they were domesticated. Wait, so they lived for thousands, like, like in, in Genesis, where everybody lived for like several centuries? No, not like Methuselah the cat, like... <laughs> Like generations of cats existed alongside uh, okay, generations okay. of humans. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Meowthuselah. Meowthuselah. And, and Meowsis. Meowsis? <laughs> Is this mic on? <laughs> so during that whole several thousands of years where cats were like friends with benefits with humans, their genes really didn't change very much from those of wildcats, apart from picking up one little tweak, the distinctive stripes and dots of the tabby cat. So researchers surveyed the DNA of more than 200 cats spanning the last 9,000 years. Obviously, some of these cats were no longer alive, including ancient Roman cat remains, Egyptian cat mummies, and modern African wildcat specimens. So two major cat lineages contributed to the domestic kitty cat that we know today. And uh, this study was reported recently in the Journal of Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Unlike what we were talking about with the domestication of dogs, it actually does look like cats were domesticated two different times in two separate places. So the early ancestors of today's domestic cats spread from Southwest Asia and into Europe as early as 4400 BCE. And so this was 
probably cats hanging around farming communities in the Fertile Crescent, so Mesopotamia, uh, what is modern day Iraq, Iran, about 8,000 years ago. And then they settled into this sort of mutually beneficial relationship as a rodent patrol. It wasn't that humans were selecting cats for their ability to kill mice. It was just nice to have the cats around because they killed the mice that would otherwise eat the grain that humans wanted. And so... Yeah, and it makes sense with the timing. Yeah, exactly. So time, Because like, if cats started showing up around farming communities around the time that farming communities started popping off, like you have these grain stores that you're keeping and... And you need that grain for the whole year. Yeah, and, and so it's probably not a coincidence. No. No, no, no. The cats rolled up then. And it's it's sort of one of those things that we were talking about last week as well with commensal species like foxes and raccoons. Cats are essentially like a secondary commensal species. Like the the mice are really the ones that are hanging around for the the human refuse, the the grain, but the cats are benefiting from the mice and from eventual human attention. So a second cat lineage consisting of African cats that dominated Egypt spread into the Mediterranean and most of the old world, so Europe, beginning around 1500 BCE. So the Egyptian cat probably had behaviors that made it attractive to humans more so than just being effective rodent killers. They might have been more sociable and more uh, prone to being tame. Surprisingly, wild and domestic cats show no major differences in their genetic makeup, and one of the few traits available for telling them apart was the tabby coat marking, and and that really only became a common feature of cats uh, in the 18th century in Europe. And so um, in the 19th century, cat fanciers began selecting cats with particular traits to create fancy breeds. Um, fancy cats. So fancy. Cats that lift up their little pinky paws when they drink from their teacups. The indoor cat became a thing much, much later than the strictly companion dog. Yeah. And so indoor cats, as we understand them today, they're kind of a 20th century invention. Because what do you need that cat to be able to do inside if it's an inside cat? Pay the rent. God, I wish. Yeah, that would make me a cat person. How about poop in a box? Yep. Kitty litter was invented in 1947. That's surprisingly late. Yeah, by um, an American hero named Ed Lowe. They were just out there pooping in your victory garden before that. You can't beat the Germans that way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so before then, until 1947, every cat was kind of an indoor-outdoor cat. Um, but that, so that's what folks would do if they their cats were working cats that were in barns or cellars or just around on the property, or they if they were their house pets, they would come in at night, but they would go out to do their business. Right. And when they go out to do their business, sometimes the business that they do is murder. Um, so, unfortunately. The thing about uh, indoor-outdoor cats is that when they are outdoor cats, um, they do a lot of killing. So they can often, when cats enter an area where previously there have been no cats, they can have a really detrimental effect on local wildlife. So we've got a few case studies of that. Um, The first one is in Australia. So historical records date the introduction of cats to Australia. So cat, Australia, Australia, cat, um, at around 1804. And then cats first became feral around Sydney by 1820. So that didn't take long. Cats may play a role in Australia's altered ecosystems with 
foxes. They may be controlling introduced rabbits, which is great because rabbits are a huge pest in Australia and they they ruin a lot of uh, farmland. But also, unfortunately, they are believed to have been a factor in the extinction of the only mainland bird species to be lost since European settlement, the paradise parrot. This is why we can't have nice things. Um, Cats in Australia have no natural predators except dingoes and wedge-tailed eagles. And so wherever there aren't dingoes or eagles, the cats are an apex predator. Which of those are venomous? (laughs) All predators in Australia are venomous. Science. Okay. So here's some stats that really startled me from, this is from the US. Um, This is from an article in Business Insider. Domestic cats, and this is both cats that are stray and cats that are kept but allowed outside, kill between 1.4 and 3.7 billion birds, billion with a B, and between 6.9 and 20.7 billion mammals, so mostly things like mice and shrews and rabbits and squirrels and voles, each year in the contiguous U.S., This is a study published uh, in 2013 in Nature Communications. So free-ranging cats are likely the single greatest source of man-made mortality for U.S. birds and mammals. Researchers guess that a single cat may kill between 100 and 200 mammals annually. And so that means 3 and 8 billion mammals. And that's, I guess, the low end of the estimate. So that's, I didn't realize those numbers were so high. Although I had read yeah. a recent study that um, it was just an article about a study where they basically attached little GoPros to lots and lots of outdoor cats and then watched the footage back. And the cats basically just, for the most part, spent their day recreationally stalking and killing small critters, which like that's what they do. They're cats. My my cat neighbor, Buttons, mm-hmm. is an indoor outdoor cat. Hi, Buttons. And he, he goes on walks with Calypso. That's very nice. Isn't that sweet? Does he murder anything while he's out there? Oh, he's an old man cat. I don't think he does that anymore. I'll take a photo of him bumping noses with Calypso because they always greet each other. Because they are the apex predators on this hill, even though there are much larger dogs that live here. Well, thank goodness there are no dingoes or wedge-tailed eagles. I know. Oh, God. Calypso's not allowed to stay out in the yard because we're convinced that a raptor will get her. And do you mean a large bird? I mean, hey, who knows? Okay, uh, back to cat murder. Not murder of cats, murder by cats. Yeah. Tell me about a notorious murderer. Well, so island cats are thought to be particularly deadly, uh, despite the name island cat, which suggests sort of a more relaxed, really laid back. <laughs> relaxed demeanor. No, um, so <laughs> if, if a cat is a predator on an island, the things that it's preying on can't easily get away unless they can fly or oh, swim. God. Um, oh my god! <laughs> it's a it's a bounded environment, right? Yeah, no, that is wow. It just got <laughs> islands just got so much scarier. You're not you're too big to get eaten by a house cat. Oh, this got this got weird. I know. <laughs> a study published several years ago in the journal Global Change Biology estimated that island dwelling feral cats have contributed to at least 14 percent of the world's bird, mammal, and reptile extinction. The whole world. 14%. So the, the authors of that study also estimated that feral island cats were the primary threat to 8% of all critically endangered birds, mammals, and reptiles on Earth. Good grief. So here's a very specific case of one particular cat drastically affecting uh, the population of, of an island species. This is the story of Tibbles the cat and the Stevens Island wren. So if there were true crime podcasts 
for birds. Tibbles would be the night stalker of... Oh, my God. Tibbles lived more than 100 years ago on Stevens Island, which is a small island off the southern coast of New Zealand. And her owner, David Lyle, was one of the lighthouse keepers there. The Stevens Island wren, no surprise, also lived on Stevens Island. Yeah, and it's a species. It wasn't just like a particularly famous wren. No, it wasn't just one wren. So this particular species was believed to be nocturnal and flightless. It was a small little bird. It would have fit in the palm of your hand. So, it, But it would have been sort of much like the kiwi bird that still is uh, around in New Zealand, although that too is an endangered species. Thanks, cats. <laughs> I don't know if we can blame cats for that one. And it probably scooted along the ground and ate insects as uh, other surviving species of similar New Zealand wrens do today. So the Stevens Island wren wasn't always just on Stevens Island. The fossil record actually shows that the little guy also once roamed all of New Zealand. But by 1894, invasive species brought by Europeans had all but wiped it out, except on Stevens Island. So 1894 was just a bad year all around for the Stevens Island wren, because that's also when David Lyle moved to the island, bringing his sweet Tibbles along. And Tibbles, she liked to eat Stevens Island wrens. And so... The legend goes that the little bird's population was so decimated by Tibble's hunting habits that the whole species went extinct within a year of its discovery. But this might be a little bit of a smear campaign against Tibbles. Oh, free Tibbles. Hashtag free Tibbles. In a 2004 essay published by the Ornithological Society of New Zealand, Ross Galbraith and Derek Brown argue that the wren's extinction may have been actually spread out over a slightly longer period of time and, and it may have actually been over two to three years, and there may also have been more than one cat on the island. It's still not great. It is uncontested that cat predation was the nail in the coffin for the now extinct Stevens Island wren. And so Tibbles, whether she deserved it or not, has become the the poster cat for the dangers posed by outdoor cats to indigenous species. So how about I um, fill you in on some some cats through through history and literature? Have you compiled a catalog yeah i guess i have we're gonna start with the father of history herodotus himself they know him yeah (laughs) Yeah. i'm gonna start i'm gonna start with what i know um he freaked out about domestic cats in egypt like good freaking Um, out like he loved them boy he was just (laughs) oh god i love that the the idea of him just being like oh my god (laughs) well that's that's what i little pause (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's what i thought you meant (laughs) so even though um cats had been introduced to the greek world by the phoenicians the idea is that they were maybe smuggled out of egypt by the phoenicians or maybe the cats just got on their ships um because the phoenicians were like big into maritime trade all over the mediterranean world and it they are probably how cats got from um, Egypt to greater Greece. And uh, that was something around the 5th century uh, BCE. And so cats had already been creeping into Europe um, around 1500 BCE. And even though Herodotus wrote and lived much later than that, um, he was from a place that's now in modern Turkey and not everybody had seen cats. And so he had only seen wild cats. And so, you know, when he 
was writing about Egypt, he was just like, oh, my God, they got all these cats. They're walking around and everybody's acting like it's not a thing. And so the Greek word for for cats um, was Iluros, which means um, thing with the waving tail or the, the, the swishy tailed thing. Oh, yeah. That's um, fear of cats is Ilurophobia. Yep. That's why. Checks out. Yeah. And the, but, but people knew about cats. Aristophanes, um, the playwright who wrote wacky comedies, um, there was a punchline in there. It's like, oh, the cat did it. And so you like blame things on the cat. Is that like um, the, the butler did it or like the dog farted? Yeah, I think more the latter. I don't know okay. if cats were like murdering. Like, I mean, we just got done with a whole section about how cats yeah. are <laughs> tiny killers. They were doing outdoor murdering. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it was the butler did it in the frogs. Oh, heard. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm leaving that in for like the three people that will understand that reference. Oh, no. <laughs> Hi, Elizabeth. But- <laughs> So cats were known enough that you could have a punchline about cats in in a play. Sure. Uh, so, and then also, since last week we talked about a uh, puppy mosaic in Pompeii, mm-hmm. uh, the the Kawaikana mosaic, there's a, a mosaic in Pompeii that features a kitty uh, killing a bird. But the cat looks like <laughs> On super... Brand. Yeah, the cat looks like super strung out. Like it looks like it's been rolling around in catnip. Like the eyes are really weird. Um, I'll put up a photo of it, but it's okay. Yeah, we'll put it's, that up. it's basically like if you're like Amber, describe a cat to me. I would describe that. I'm gonna shift gears here and go into specific cats and okay. like gods and otherwise. Um, so in Norse mythology, Freya, well, she was she was what she was the the goddess of like agrarian stuff. Yeah, harvest yeah. goddess. Yeah. So I guessed this because she had her chariot that was pulled by her cat steeds so (laughs) she had she had two kits pulling her chariot and farmers would leave pans of milk out in their in their fields so like it's like for santa in egypt uh there was the goddess bastet right um later during the hellenistic period um when syncretism was happening and so syncretism is where you have two religions or just like two um, ideologies that kind of borrow from each other and become something new in the hellenistic period when um so hellenistic hell having to do with greece bestet was consolidated with artemis and they had like similar qualities to begin with and i kind of think that's that's sort of cute that you would have a cat shaped uh deity that's also hunting goddess yeah because she's and so artemis and diana were both shown with they often had cats as as like um icons and things so be like so and so that's i like that the little little hunter but you've got yeah you've got these uh these deities that are usually feminine usually loners usually hunters usually uh, more nocturnal and so it's like oh who's like that kitties but tell me about some some things that other kitties got up to in the night the cat that goes bump in the night yes i have two of them well first i want to tell you a a brief but astounding anecdote which is (laughs) in 1890 a shipment of 19 tons t-o-n-n-e-s so 1000 kilograms so 19 times 19,000 kilograms of mummified cats Arrived 
in Liverpool. Uh, why? <laughs> uh, well, they were from Beni Hassan and uh, the Egyptian collection that had been excavated therefrom. They didn't really know what to do with them for the most part because... Um, this was, I mean, it was 1890, and so this was all the time of mummy craze in kind of the Victorian yeah. era, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so mummies mm-hmm, were being mm-hmm. used for all sorts of fun and problematic things like paint and entertainment, so mummy unwrappings were a big thing. And mummy, in general, had been used medicinally for a really long time, like since at least uh, the Middle Ages. So... Uh, I guess someone sort of speculatively thought, yeah, ship them to England. See, see if we can find a buyer. Um, unfortunately, much of the shipment was sold off for fertilizer, which is okay. just like now some of the um, some of the cat mummies and some of the original documentation that accompanied them um, is at the World Museum in Liverpool. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know it's like the That's World where Cup. I expect to find one. Um, <laughs> well, not. Terribly far from there is the Manchester Museum. I mean, all things considered, not terribly far from there. And they um, have 60-some animal mummies that they've done research on and put on display. And they did X-ray and CT scans of these. And so you have... So imagine, like, the the little... So you got a mummy, and then you got the sarcophagus that the mummy's mm-hmm. inside. Yep. Um, and the sarcophagus is shaped like the animal that's allegedly inside it. People would would do this for a variety of reasons. Either it's their pet that they that they are giving a burial pra- a burial service to, or it's something that's going in as like a votive offering or something, or it's an offering in a temple. So it's something that you would you would buy like um like I guess like you can like buy a candle to light in a in a church. It's something that is available sort of there at the place of worship. And so they they would do this. And so there was a market for it. And it seems that there were scams because of these uh, these mummies at the Manchester Museum. When they scanned them, there weren't always complete skeletons of the animal. So you'd have like a cat mummy and there would only be like part of a cat in it Ooh. or something that wasn't a cat at all or nothing. And because, you know, is somebody going to crack it open and see if there's actually a mummy inside it? Uh, so if these were used as votive offerings, there might have been like some huckster who's there. Oh, man. Being like, I got your cat mummies right here. And they're like, oh, great. I forgot my cat mummy at home and I got to go talk to some deity. Like, thanks, man. And like, he, here's some money. And he pulls open and, his trench coat like, hey. Yeah. You, like, you got, I got the cat mummies. You want the cat mummies? I got the cat mummies. Because they're, uh, which is. If you got um, the mummy, I got the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's it's I I just find that really like fascinating and sort of I don't know almost comforting that people have been I know ripping each been, other off. There have been cheaty <laughs> cheaty cheats for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, so that's just something that I thought was a, a fun thing to. It's definitely part of the like history of cats and their relationship with humans. Yeah, for sure. That's a lens. Pursue it to scams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, other stories from uh, cat behavior through history, just like cats being cats and not changing forever. <laughs> In July 2011, a teaching and research assistant named Emir Filipovich or Filipovich 
um, he he's at the University of Sarajevo, and he was uh, paging through a medieval manuscript, and he discovered pages of the book stained with the inky paw prints of a cat. And and we'll put a picture up on social media. It's it's so cute, um, but you know I can imagine how miffed the the owner slash scribe of the manuscript would have been. Um, well, not as miffed as this next guy. Yeah, I know. This is just so typical. So this is another medieval manuscript. Um, and in the uh, sort of margins of the page, the scribe of the book has written, quote, Here is nothing missing, but a cat urinated on this during a certain night. Cursed be the pesty cat that urinated over this book. Because of it, many others did too. <laughs> and beware not to leave open books at night where cats can come. I mean, that's what you get. Don't leave your books open. And there's like, there's a blank, more or less a, a blank uh, column. Yeah. So there's like one column of text and then there's a column that has a watermark on yep. it, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and then his little note. And then there's like some kind of badly drawn like mouse pointy, kangaroo pointy. creature. Which oh, I is, think that's like, supposed to be a cat, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then like a finger, like fingers pointing, being like it peed here and it peed here, which I just love. But he like got out his quill and was just like, oh, that's that's how cats do. So so when did cats start? And like, <laughs> how did cats? <laughs> yeah. And like, what about like cat burials? Do we know the earliest one? I, I couldn't find anything about the earliest one, but I found one in, I mean, I didn't find it. Someone else found it. Um, in Cyprus, there appears to have been a an intentional burial of a cat. Yeah, it's like a little Neolithic kitty. And so they think that it shows that cats were present on the island starting from around uh, 9,500 years ago. Uh, now, there is a pet cemetery that was in Egypt, and but this was sort of Roman-era Egypt, and so there was a, a whole whole mess of cat burials. And so that's much later. That's in the first century of the Common Era or so. I found some stuff definitely in the uh, BCE side of things. Maybe the most convincing image of a potential pet from the couple, first couple of centuries BCE is... In the Musée d'Aquitaine in Bordeaux, I've been there. It's oh. a really, it's a really cool museum, and it it's on the gravestone of a Gallo-Roman child. So uh, uh, after Gaul was conquered by the Romans, um, who died in the second century BCE, and it's a it's a grave steely, and it it's got a little lifelike image of a little girl cuddling a cat to her chest, and so. I mean, Aww. the artist really sort of nailed how little kids are with pet cats. It's sort of... So it was squeezing it and the cat's eyes were bulging slightly? Well, it's sort of like she's gripping it under its front legs and its lower okay. body is dangling. <laughs> okay. And then, the, I mean, there's also the cute little detail that there's a, a rooster and the rooster is grabbing the tip of the little cat's tail. Aww. So it's, you know, it's it's a very sweet little kind of... Uh, whimsical portrait, which is odd to see on a on a, a grave marker, but it's sort of endearing. Oh, I like that. Yeah, a poor and, cat though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, poor kitty. So there were Viking cats. What with tiny helmets? No. Um, yeah, it just it seems that uh, in the way of many sea seafaring peoples, Vikings uh, would keep cats on their ships occasionally to to deal with rodents. 
Yeah, this is this is our your friend and mine, Pontus Skogland, oh, yes. um, who also did some of the the dog DNA studies that we talked about last week. This but guy, this guy, um, yeah, is <laughs> at Harvard Medical School in Boston, and uh, <laughs> what? Just the in Boston. <laughs> it's a small med school outside of Boston. Boston. Yeah. Boston. <laughs> Boston. Boston Robbins. <laughs> I'm going to Boston Ribbons. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about these Viking cats. A, a mitochondrial lineage, so a maternal DNA lineage common in Egyptian cat mummies, was also carried by these cats found at a Viking site dating to between the 8th and 11th century BCE in northern Germany. So this this uh, lineage of cats that originally descended from those in Egypt, they made it all the way to Germany on, on their little kitty Viking ships. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really oh, cool. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, cats cats traveled. Yeah, so other ancient cats, there's no cat Argos. No, and you know why? Because cats. Yes. Because no cat is going to put up with that. So, you know, I already mentioned Aristophanes' punchline about cats doing it. Not, nope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's relevant. Aristotle, it's relevant. <laughs> which is relevant. Um, because Aristotle thought that cats were naturally lecherous because he was just commenting. It was you know, one of his treatises on life and, and animals and stuff. And he's like, cats. Mm-mm. There are cats in the Mahabharata and in the Ramayana. So two super so, important Indian sort of epic tales. Yeah. Um, there's a very sweet story in um, sort of Persian folklore this is about the Persian cats. According to Persian folklore, they are magic. Um, because according to legend, the great Persian hero Rustam was out on campaign. And while he was out there campaigning, he came upon this guy who was besieged by thieves. And so Rustam, like, scared him off, saved the guy, found out the guy is a magician. What um, are the odds? I know. Well, I don't know. Actually, I don't have like a... I'm not actually asking for statistical odds. (laughs) Please tell me the rest of the story. (laughs) Uh, And so Rustam was like, oh, my God, you're out here. It's it's like dark and like come stay at my tent. I got a fire here. We'll have dinner. It'll be great. Just chill out. It's fine. Um, And so they're sitting around the fire looking up at the stars. And it's like like a wonderful evening. And the magician was like, thank you so much. You saved my life. What can I do in repayment? Like, what can I give you that would be repayment? Like, I'm a magician. Whatever you want. It's yours. And um, Rustam told him that there was nothing he desired since everything he could want he already had. uh, Because all he really wanted was the warmth and comfort of the fire, the scent of the smoke, and the beauty of the stars overhead. The magician was like, oh, okay, I can give you that. Took a handful of smoke, added some flame, and brought down two of the brightest stars and kneaded them together in his hands and blew on him. And when he opened his hands toward Rustam, the warrior saw a small smoke-gray kitten with eyes bright as the stars and a tiny tongue which darted like the tip of flame. Isn't that cute? That's real cute. So that's how Persian cats happened. And it was just like as a little token of gratitude to Rustam. Um, I'm going to tell you how the little M design got on the forehead of the tabby. They got the little markings on their head. They got the little little wavy wave on their head. So there's two stories for this. Um, The first one 
is uh, comes from uh, the Islamic tradition uh, because it is well known from the Hadith. And so the Hadith are the collection of the people who knew the Prophet Muhammad were like, oh, he always said this. He felt this way about things. And so they were compiled after his death. And so one of the things that people know from the Hadith is that Muhammad was big into cats. Huh. Like, I didn't loved- know that. Yeah, he loved cats. And so he had a, his favorite kitty was named Mutza. So there were one day he was with Mutza and um, he was like snuggling with him. And the kitty was asleep, but the call to prayer happened. And he's like, oh, I gotta go. I gotta, oh, I gotta go. But the kitty was sleeping. And so what he did was he didn't want to wake up the kitty. So he cut the sleeve of his, of his uh, robe off so oh, that he would leave the kitty to go sleep so he could slip out. That's a real good cat dad. Yeah. And so he didn't want to, he didn't want to disturb the kitty because they're so cute. Um, and so he just let the kitty there. And then he blessed the kitty by placing his hand on his head. And that's, that's what left the impression from the prophet's hand left the little mark you know in true crusades fashion the catholic church has got its own answer and that it was put there by mary so the m is for mary Mm -hmm. um because when jesus was born and laid in the manger it was a cold night there in in bethlehem and a little kitty came in and curled up to keep baby Jesus warm. And Mary was like, oh, thank you. And like petted the little kitty on its head. And she left the M. Now, this is where I get confused because that DNA study that I read said I that know. tabby cat markings did not arise until the Middle Ages. But, but both of these are like, oh, cats are um, are much beloved by these very divine figures. So cats are... Like, cats are pretty great. We're on board with cats. So everything we've talked about so far has been sort of European and, and Near Eastern centric. Yeah. Um, so let's... Yeah, you've got some great... Scoot East a little greater bit. Greater Asia cat stories. Yeah. For me. So uh, we're starting with a little bit of archaeology. So in 2001, Chinese researchers discovered cat bones in agricultural settlements in Shaanxi province. And... They were growing cats? They were growing cats. It was a cat farm. Yep, it was agricultural. <laughs> so they determined that these cat bones were from around 3500 BCE, but they couldn't tell if they were from uh, fully domesticated cats or from little wild cats. And so recently uh, it has now been established that they belonged to the leopard cat, which is a distant cousin of the western wild cat. And sort of the the great granddaddy of all modern domesticated cats. So these were commensal-ish wild cats that were hanging out in agricultural settlements in China, just the same way that they, they had been doing elsewhere in the agricultural world. So that's neat. The cat has a long history in China. And despite this, the Chinese zodiac has no cat. Um, there's a rat. Oh. There's, there's a dog. There's no cat. Oh, man. Don't tell these people. And that study we're going to talk about at the end. <laughs> so, well, I mean, there's a legend to account for it, though. Okay. So, uh, legend says that it's the rat's fault because the rat neglected to wake the sleepy cat on the day of the race that would determine which animals would get to be included in the zodiac. So, as a result, the cat missed the race, and then the cat hated the rat, and then, you know, 
cats chase and eat rats so that checks out why are you making this rat do all your like all the labor i know why is there no labor in this relationship why is the rat your alarm clock so there's another theory also that says just like cats as pets weren't a thing yet when the zodiac okay was created (laughs) so i mean i know which one i believe it's definitely the cat race so moving on to vietnam the vietnamese calendar borrows from the chinese calendar but they made some switcheroos they replaced the ox with the buffalo and they replaced the rabbit with the cat so uh, I get I get the first one. So the water buffalo is you know it's it's the the cow of of Vietnam. It's prized among farmers. But why the cat? One theory says it has to do with a word mix up. Uh, th- there's there's the Chinese word for rabbit, and then there's another word that specifically refers to the year of the rabbit. Oh, okay. um, and because. Chinese is a tonal language, and I, I don't speak it. Um, I'm probably going to do this wrong, but Americanized the that year of the rabbit word is Mao, which sounds a lot like Mao, which is the Chinese word for cat, which is great because you know th- that's the noise that cats make. Mao. Well, the ancient Egyptian word is Mao. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to call that thing that makes that noise that sounds like Mao? All of that sounds like the Vietnamese word for cat, which is Mao. So makes sense. Yeah. So um, cats arrived in Japan as stowaways on ships that uh, came from China with sacred Buddhist scriptures in the mid 6th century. By the Edo period, which is 1615 to 1868 CE, uh, Japan loved cats. And there's just buckets of cat themed art from that time but my favorite and by favorite i mean i hate it so much but i can't not look at it is this print of sort of japanese geisha types and sort of male companions having a super fun time except that their faces are cats and they have cat ears but they also have like human noses and i have to Put it up on social media in order to just sort of diffuse the burden of having yeah, seen it. It's from a technical standpoint, it's beautiful. Oh, it's a beautiful woodblock printing. Yeah, 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 for sure. I hate it. Yep, hate it. Humor is culture bound. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we are for sure outside of the culture in which this was created. So, wow. I mean, look at it. Just look at it. Yeah, we'll let you decide for yourself Cat people. what you think. Yep. Um, so when, when you think Japan and cats, um, uh, probably the thing that a lot of people think of is that cat with the wavy paw from every sushi restaurant ever, the, the maneki neko. Uh, the thing that I didn't know and didn't realize because I clearly don't pay attention to my surroundings is that the paw changes depending on what you want. So if the cat's left paw is the one that's waving, it's for customers and the right paw is for money. Is in order to beckon those things to your establishment. And so it's sort of ubiquitous in Asian businesses, but no one really knows where it comes from. The earliest mention of a Maneki Neko statue might be from a diary from 1852 kept by a state official. But um, there's a couple of, again, legends about how this tradition arose. One of them says a samurai or a feudal Japanese lord, rich guy, took refuge from a rainstorm under a tree and then saw a cat that beckoned him to enter a temple. And he did so immediately after that, a lightning bolt struck the tree that he had been underneath. And so uh, in gratitude, he uh, created this, this statue. That's nice. Oh, that's nice. This story is not as nice. Okay. So just a, a warning. There is some cat damage in this story. 
Uh, this story stars a geisha and her cat and a really dumb guest and a snake. Oh, no. So the the kitty cat came up to his his owner, the geisha, and pawed at her in the way that, that kitties do. And the the guest mistook the cat's pawing for clawing and cut off the cat's head. But the head landed on a snake that was about to attack the geisha. And so the guest's response was just sort of, whoops, my bad. And then he commissioned a wooden cat to be carved in the likeness of the geisha's cat. Well, that top to bottom is an awful story. Yep. And so finally, maybe one of the most famous cats to ever come out of Japan, Hello Kitty. (laughs) So in the 1960s, the company Sanrio, which was, uh, I didn't know this, a silk and produce company. They started a line of these cute little things that were, you know, in Japan, there's this custom of for lots of occasions, you give little gifts you know, sort of thank you for your hospitality or a gift of well-wishing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so this I got company, a little something. Yeah, exactly. Something. Yeah. yeah. And so Sanrio started making these super cute little figurines. And Hello Kitty was one of the results of this line. And yeah, because Sanrio has, they've got like this little penguin and Pingu. there's a little black cat. And yeah, there's, I there's, mean, there's dozens of them and I... Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're all That's... really cute. However, I'm going to break this news to you. According to Sanrio, Hello Kitty is not a kitty. She's a cartoon character. She's a little girl, but not a cat. She's also not Japanese. She's British, and her name is Kitty White. So everything that you knew is wrong. Also, the article that I saw this in uh, referred to Hello Kitty as a mouthless sensation, which I do <laughs> not like at all. <laughs> I hate that. Um, And speaking of things you do not like at all, uh, we read this really great article. Okay, it's Um, not that I didn't like it. It was just (laughs) so much. So this is from from Nature in 2015. The headline is, I can has genomes, cats claw their way into genetics. Um, And it's just like a real... Real pun run from here on down. But it's a really fascinating look at uh, at that time work towards um, sequencing the cat genome. Researchers don't sequence genomes just for the fun of it. It's actually something that is extremely helpful in veterinary science and helpful in um, not only understanding and addressing genetic disorders and just illnesses among cats it also can provide like parallels for human medicine yeah for sure Um, i am i am on board so far but the quotes from people here are bonkers like these are like level 99 cat people and there is like reference to a conspiracy. There had been a lot of research at this time in 2015. There had been a lot of research done into dog, uh, dog genomics, but not as much into cat genomics. And so I'm going to read from this article now. The discrepancy can be traced back to the early 2000s. After the completion of the human, mouse, and rat genomes, the U.S. US National Institutes of Health organized a commission to decide on their next target. The dog genome was selected for high-quality sequencing, whereas cats were put on hold. 
That got some cat geneticists' backs up. The truth, quote, the truth is there were more powerful people interested in dogs, end quote, says Stephen O'Brien, director of the Theodosius Obzhansky Center for Genome Bioinformatics in St. Petersburg, Russia, who led the initial cat sequencing efforts. So they're like talking about how big dog is interfering with like cat genome research. It is a infuriatingly delightful article to read. Because they're talking about the research and be like, also owner of two cats. We've got this cat named Dragon and his parents, Aries and Marcus. And so it's just like referring to these researchers and their cat children. And I'm just like, you are writing for science, sir or madam. Yeah, I mean, obviously we are going to link the heck out of this article. (laughs) It's great. It's great. People love cats. So we have some shout outs today, or at least we have one shout out. (laughs) We have shout out. And that is to Maeve, who is lucky patron number 13. So we're really, we love each and every one of our patrons. And we love each and every one of y'all out there listening. Thanks for listening. You guys are great. So um, right now, as you may have heard at the beginning of our special bonus episode, we are making a fundraising push to get us to the triple A's, the conference, the anthropology conference in San Jose, where we're going to do a whole lot of content for you, video, audio, all of that fun stuff. And we're also working to take the dirt live and start doing live shows, hopefully as early as next summer, which is super exciting. In order to help us do that, we have set up both our normal Patreon donation page and special one-time donation options so that you can help us with any amount that you see fit uh, to donate. And and we would be immensely appreciative of any help that you can give us to uh, help us get where we want to go. And where we want to go is to you. We do. We want to go to your ears. We want to go to your eyes. We want to make all this happen uh, so that we can keep bringing this content to you. And if you would like to help us, we would super duper appreciate it. And you can do it at thedirtpod.com slash goals. And you can also find us at our home on SoundCloud. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts, we're there. Uh, We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Insta, we are at The Dirt Pod. And you can always send us an email, chock full of pet pics, um, over at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, which is thedirtpod.com. And you can see all of those social media Yep, it's all linked there. We're going to have lots and lots of great photos, except for that one scary Japanese one, on social media. So we hope you will enjoy that. We'll see you there. We will see you on the social media, and we will be back in your ears same time next week. All right, well, until next week. Meow. Take take care. We love you. Bye. Bye.